0: Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's start tonight in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. I usually um, take the position on scholarly arguments that it's hardly worth getting involved with. Scholarly arguments, by the definition I'm using, I might as well explain to you what I mean by that. When you get Bible scholars that are looking for a way to take something away from us, which is what most of the scholarly arguments end in, at least one side of them anyway, then it's really not worth getting into whatever the controversial issue or subject matter or whatever that the scholarly arguments are based upon. However, there is one, at least one exception to that, and that is, is healing a part of the atonement? Now, that's something that's been argued about since Jesus died, I guess. In every generation of the church, there is a group of people, in, uh, in some cases many groups of people, denominations and so forth, that argue that Jesus died to pay the price for our sins, but not our sickness. And as such, they claim that, the, that healing is not a part of the atoning work of Christ, what Jesus died and paid for on the cross, in other words. So this is one scholarly argument That I believe every Christian, every believer, should have a basic working knowledge of. There may be details and there may be offshoots of um, things that people will use to claim that healing's been done away with or God's not in the healing business the way that he used to be, and therefore Jesus didn't pay for sin and sickness and disease, uh, didn't pay for sickness and disease when he paid the price for sin. But there are four words. That you need to know regarding the, the, uh, the question, is healing in the atonement? Now let me say this before I go any further. There's only one time in the, in the New Testament where the word atonement is used in the King James. And that's really not even the word for atonement. It's in Romans chapter 5 verse 11, I believe. And Paul is talking about Reconciliation. Now reconciliation literally means exchange or mutual exchange. There are two words that are used for, uh, uh, translated as reconciliation. And when it talks about the exchange or mutual exchange, it very simply means what Jesus did for us in our place or as our substitute. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, as such, the Bible goes on to say God's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, the good news, that which we're supposed to be telling the world about what Jesus did, is that Jesus took our unrighteousness, literally spiritual death, and in exchange for what he took from us, he provided for us righteousness or eternal life. So with that in mind... The New Testament talks about what we would consider to be redemption, not atonement. The Old Testament, the Hebrew word for atonement, means to cover something over. And that's what the Day of Atonement was all about. It was man going through the ritual sacrifice that God had given them to do and to offer so that their sins could be covered over for a one-year period of time. But they had to keep doing it every year. But the Bible says, and part of the reason they had to do it every year is because the blood of animals was not a worthy sacrifice for man's spiritual death, condition of spiritual death. But the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that God, Jesus specifically, entered in once and for all into the heavenly holy of holies and offered his blood, his precious blood, not the blood of bulls and goats. That wasn't sufficient to bring righteousness for, to you and me. It wasn't sufficient to make the exchange that would be a lasting exchange But Jesus entered into the holy place, the heavenly holy of holies, offered his blood, and the exchange or the redemptive plan of God was completed. Well, back to Isaiah chapter 53. These four words that you need to know, it doesn't matter if you need to, I'm not saying you need to know the Hebrew, but you need to have a basic understanding and working knowledge if you're going to be able to stand strong in the face of the enemy or who the enemy uses to try to take something, the great blessing of healing for our physical bodies away from us. So Isaiah chapter 53, let's, start, let's look at verse 4. It says, Surely he, speaking of Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did have seen him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now folks, everybody agrees. All scholars, Bible scholars agree that Isaiah 53 is the messianic chapter. And what that means is It was Isaiah looking into the future by the revelation of the Holy Ghost telling us what the Messiah would do, what eternal life would result in, and how these things would work from God's point of view. So these four words that are there in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The words that we need to know are born, griefs, carried, and sorrows. Now let's look at griefs to begin with. The word griefs in the Old Testament is the word coli, and I have no idea if I'm saying it right, but it's C-H-O-L-E-E, and this word chole is translated several different times in the Old Testament. Let me read to you a few of the places where it's translated or where it's used in the Old Testament text and show you how it was translated in those other places. first one you need to look to is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness. That word sickness is the word "coli." And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. So the translators translated "coli" as sickness in Deuteronomy 8, 7, 15. The next one I want you to see is over in Deuteronomy chapter 28. This one you're probably going to be a little bit more familiar with because the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy is all about identifying the curse of the law and the blessings of God. The first 14 chapters of of Deuteronomy 28 is talking about the blessings of God that will come on us through obedience or come on them through obedience. We've got a better covenant established upon better promises. So we see the the Old Testament covenant with Abraham as being just a, a baseline or a foundation for the better covenant we have through Jesus. But after the uh, beginning with verse 15, it starts talking about the curses of the law. And it goes through and it identifies 14 different specific sicknesses or 14 specific diseases like leprosy, like um, uh, the botch of Egypt, which most people is, uh, consider that to be leprosy. It talks about skin diseases, skin cancers, uh, boils, and so forth. It talks about a number of specific sicknesses or diseases but then also it tells us at the end of the chapter in verse 61 Deuteronomy 28 verse 61 it says after giving them specific information about the curse of the law including sickness and disease it says also every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law then will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed that word sickness in Deuteronomy 28 61 is the word coli. So the translators knew, they well understood that Coley is talking about sickness and disease. It's a word that should be, and in many cases, most cases, translated sickness and or disease, and it is. Let's look at a few more. In 1 Kings chapter 17, it says, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. This word sickness is the word Coley. Again, the translators understood what this word meant, and they were faithful to the translation, the correct or accurate translation, by translating it coli. The second next one I want you to see, the last one we'll take a look at, is in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 8. And the king said unto Hazel, Take a present in thine hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? This is the word coli. The word disease is the word coli. Now folks, you can see over and over again where the Bible translates this word coli in the Old Testament to be either sickness or disease. You can see very readily that in Isaiah 53 verse 4, it's talking about that very thing. How would they get griefs from coli? They didn't get griefs from coli in 2 Kings chapter 8 verse 8. See if I shall recover from this grief. That wouldn't make sense, would it? In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 61, and also every sickness and every disease not mentioned in this book of the law will God bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. He's talking about the results or the consequences of disobedience. Well, he didn't say all, uh, also every grief shall come upon you. Grief wouldn't make sense there because the subject matter is sickness and disease. So they translated faithfully again this Hebrew word koli as sickness, not grief. But in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, again it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, koli, and carried our sorrows. Why in the world would the translators put the word or translate this word koli as griefs rather than sickness and disease? It had to be more than just the translation or the knowledge of the the word and the language itself. There's no way that the translators would have just arbitrarily chosen griefs for some scholarly reason without giving us some kind of footnote in the text. No, this word griefs is the word sickness. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our sorrows. Now let's look at this word sorrows. This word sorrows in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Greek, the, I'm sorry, Hebrew. This word is makob. Now, it's a, a pretty obscure word. It's not used very many times in the, in the Old Testament at all. But the times that it is used, it's used pretty equally across the board as sorrows, griefs, or pains. And so the translators would be left to identify. Based on the context of that which is being spoken, which one should it mean? Well, they translated it sorrows. But it could be just as easily translated pains and in my opinion, should be. So it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Literally, sickness and pains. Now, let's look at the other two words real quickly. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word born is the word nasa, Asa. Again, I have no idea if I'm saying it right. But in the King James it's translated uh, as born and it literally means to lift in a wide variety of applications. So it's talking about taking up something or lifting something. The word carried is the Hebrew word sabal. Don't know if I'm saying it right or not. But this word literally means to carry a burden of some type or to bear that burden away. Now, what the, Isaiah 53 verse 4 doesn't tell you is that these words, born and carried, are Levitical terms. They were used concerning the priesthood, specifically on the Day of Atonement. As we've talked about that a little bit already, the Day of Atonement was the one day a year where an offering was made, a sacrifice was made according to very specific instructions. So that the sins of Israel could be borne away or carried by the scapegoat into the wilderness. And judgment would fall on the animal that represented the children of Israel. Rather than falling on the people themselves. Now here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to read down with me to verses 11 and 12. Let's start in verse 4 so we get the context. Surely he has borne our grief, sicknesses. And carried our sorrows or pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is talking specifically about a substitutionary work. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Again, it's talking about the things that Jesus did to accomplish the substitutionary work that he performed for mankind on the cross. Verse 8 He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Cut off from the land of the living is talking about and is a reference to the scapegoat of the Old Testament. Maybe I'll stop and explain a little bit. On the day of atonement there were two animals. They're sometimes called bulls, sometimes called goats, sometimes called lambs. But we would relate it more to a bull than anything else. So these two animals, both that were equally scrutinized by the priests to make sure that there was no spot or blemish, that it was a perfect and and would be a perfect sacrifice or as perfect as man could get to a sacrifice. And the high priest chose lots. In other words, it's about the equivalent of rolling dice to see which one is which to be used. Because there were two parts to the Day of Atonement. We know about the one where the animal was offered and and, uh, his blood was spilled, the blood was splashed upon the altar, and so forth. We have a little bit of information about that or know a little bit about how that went. But the other one was called the scapegoat. And before the, the, uh, the sacrifice was made, the high priest would go out and lay his hands on the head of this bull. And he would pronounce every sickness, I'm sorry, every sin, every wrongdoing, Everything that was possible for mankind to have entered into, every sinful thing for mankind to have entered into. And all those things were symbolically transferred from the the, uh, people of Israel through the high priest, their representative. They were transferred to the head of this bull. Now, the bull was then to be taken away from the camp of Israel. It was to be led out into the wilderness. And it says of this scapegoat, it was supposed to depart into the land. Or depart from the land of the living. So here, where it says Jesus was cut off from the land of the living, it's a, him fulfilling the type of the scapegoat. So Jesus didn't just fulfill the day of atonement sacrifice; he fulfilled the scapegoat sacrifice as well. And then out in the wilderness, either a wild beast or some type of uh, calamity would come up, would befall the scapegoat, or sometimes just the judgment of God would fall upon it itself. But it would die away from the camp it would die away from the presence of the people. So he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. This word grief is a a type or is a... um, what am I trying to say? It's a form of the word coley. It's not exactly the same, but coli is the root word for what this word is and what this word should mean. So it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The word bruise here means punishment or affliction. In other words, there was a price that Jesus was paying for our griefs, which again should be translated sickness. And it pleased God to pay that price. It pleased God To receive his son as the payment for sickness and disease. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or afflict him. He has put him to grief, sickness. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in him. Notice the connection with grief, which should be sickness, and offering his soul for sin. The Bible doesn't make any distinction between those two or identify that those were two separate events or occurrences. It groups them together as if they were one. Guess what? They were. Verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant bear many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You see that word bear? This is the word sabal. It's, the, one, it's the, the word that's translated carry in verse 4. And again, it's a Levitical term. Let's keep reading into verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This word bear is the word nasa. It's the word born in verse 4. Now, let me ask you a question. When it says, he shall see his soul an offering for sin and bear away the iniquities of us all, what does that word bear mean? When it says that he carried away these things, these sins of Israel, doesn't that mean and wouldn't that have to mean that he operated as a substitute for mankind? In other words, when Jesus bore the sins of Israel, he did it as a substitute. When he carried away the sins of Israel, he did it as a substitute. Now those same words that talk about what Jesus carried away concerning sin and transgression, it says he carried away concerning sickness and pains. So folks, the simple reality is this, and there are a lot of arguments that come up. A lot of times people say that Matthew 8, 16 and 17 where it says, uh, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he healed their sick, healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, in self bore our infirmities and care our sicknesses. Some people will argue that Jesus fulfilled that in his earthly ministry, and that's what Matthew 8, 16 and 17 is telling us. The problem with that is, if that's what he fulfilled, if he fulfilled the prophecies of Israel by healing the sick in his days, then that means Jesus also had to fulfill the prophecies, of Israel, or, uh, the prophecies of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel, not to carry away their sins on the cross, but to forgive their sins while he was here on the earth. There's one place in Matthew chapter uh, 12, I think it is, where it says Jesus did a certain thing that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and then lists part of the prophets, uh, prophecy about Jesus. The part that it leaves out, however, is the part where the Gentiles shall put their trust in his name. So my point is very simply this. I don't want to try to get too technical about stuff. But my point is very simply this. If Jesus fulfilled completely and fully any of the prophecies that were made on the behalf of Israel or talked about the blessings to Israel, then that means there is no blessing for us to take hold of today. And the Bible says the same thing about Jesus fulfilling the payment for sickness and disease, as it tells us that he paid the price for sin and transgression. Do you understand what I'm saying? It means that if Jesus did the work when he was before he went to the cross while he was still on the earth, then there's nothing for the Gentiles to trust in. That means there is no church, there. you and I are not saved, we're deluded, and we're the most pathetic of all men alive. But on the other hand, if we're going to accept just basic principles of uh, scholastic principles. Then when the Bible says that Jesus bore away our sins, and then it says he bore away our sicknesses as well, those have to be something that are on an equal par. When it says he carried the iniquities of us all, and he carried our pains, then that would mean he had to do that as a substitute as well. We can't have it both ways, folks. It's either got to be one or the other. The bearing away of sickness and the bearing away of sin have to be one and the same through the substitutionary work of Jesus along with the carrying our pains and carrying away our iniquities. It's either for both or it's for neither one at all. Let's read a little bit more. Again, verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors now folks the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word should be established so therefore if we're going to identify the principles of the atonement and what Jesus did and what Jesus paid the price for then we're going to have to make sure that it lines up with the rest of the word I mean I'm, I want to believe and do believe that Jesus died for our sins and died for our sicknesses just one and the same that the same blood he shed when he was beaten in Pilate's court that provided for us sick, uh, healing for sickness and disease that same blood was shed when he was on the cross to pay the price as our substitute in both cases as our substitute For sin, sickness, and disease. And verse four is interesting because the only time that the word the word surely is used is in verse four, where it's talking about sin and sickness, or talking about sickness and pain. Excuse me. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried away our pains. Surely he has done so. Well, how does that line up with the rest of the word? Well, Numbers chapter twenty-one is an interesting thing to consider. You can look at these if you want to. I'm not going to stop and take the time to read through them, but I trust that many of you, or most of you at least, will have a a working knowledge of the story. In Numbers chapter 21, it tells us that the people went a long way around when they were wandering in the wilderness, the uh, Israelites. And so they became discouraged because of the rough trip that they were in the middle of. And so they began to murmur against God and against Moses. And the Bible says that fiery serpents came into the camp. King James says the Lord sent them. But the scripture tells us in some other places that the whole time they were in the wilderness there were fiery serpents out there. And the reality was the only time that those fiery serpents came into the camp was when the children of Israel murmured against God and or Moses. So anyway apparently this was a a terrible, terribly destructive thing that, that was taking place. And so the people repented. The people went to Moses and said, we know we messed up. We sinned because we spoke against God and we spoke against you because of the difficulty of this trip we're on. But now do something and have mercy on us. So Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And when the people look upon it, they shall live. Well, why not a lamb? Why a serpent on the pole? This is a type of what Jesus did for us when it tells us on the cross he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now what's interesting about this, and you can look here if you want to, it's in John chapter 3 verse 14. We all know John chapter 3 verse 16, that's everybody's favorite scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. But before Jesus speaks those wonderful words that will affect the hearts of so many people uh, down through the years and the ages... One thing that he said, talking to Nicodemus, who was trying to understand this being born again stuff, he said, for as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also does the Son of Man have to be lifted up. So here's what that means. That means Jesus himself is identifying as the fulfillment of the Old Testament type of, that Moses brought to the people through the direction of God. When Moses made a serpent of brass, it's showing us how Jesus ended up on the cross. What happened when he came to the place where he was made sin for us? I don't think there's any way that we can prove it or disprove it with any certainty. But the more I read about these things and the more I study on this, it looks to me like Jesus being made sin for us was not just an instantaneous thing, but rather it was a progressive thing. I believe Jesus is facing the reality in the garden of Gethsemane when he's praying and sweats great drops of blood. I believe he's facing the reality and beginning to become sin for all mankind at that point. And then when he's beaten in Pilate's court, more and more so does he identify with the sin or spiritual, literally spiritual death of the people. And then by the time he gets on the cross, and cries out, my my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Apparently, then it became complete. That would be the only reason for God to forsake his son. And that is if his son was completely made sin for all of mankind. And God can't look on sin even when it's his own son. But then that brings to mind the, the substitutionary work of Jesus again, doesn't it? Jesus didn't become sin so that you and I could become sin too. He did it for us. He did it for us. So in the Old Testament, the type that Jesus identifies as being the one to fulfill it. Under the Old Covenant, the atonement that Moses made for the people by making the serpent of brass and putting it on a pole. It brought forgiveness because they had sinned. If forgiveness wasn't made, then even if they had gotten healed, they'd be right back in the same situation they were before, open to the destruction and destructive work of the enemy. But it provided forgiveness for them. It provided healing for them. And it also provided deliverance. So what Jesus identifies with as the serpent on the pole, he said that was a picture of me being lifted up on the cross. It brings for us the same... Forgiveness, the same healing, and the same deliverance. See, folks, if they were just healed but not delivered, the snakes would still be in the camp. But the work that God gave Moses to do that Jesus identified as being a type of himself provided freedom along with forgiveness and healing. Can you see that? Let's think about another one. Again, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. What about the Passover? You remember that the ten plagues came against uh, Egypt. Actually, nine plagues and one death of the firstborn. But do you remember before the death of the firstborn took place, Moses has gone before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I don't ever see your face again. Next time I see you, one of us will be dead. And he got what he said. But Moses was instructed by God to tell everybody how to institute and operate under the Passover rules and regulations, the ritual. Every family was supposed to get a lamb, slaughter the lamb, eat the lamb, roast in fire for the strength of their journey, and then put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost above the, the, the lintel and the sideposts so that when the angel of death came through, they would see that this house was under the blood. Well, the Bible says, Paul said Christ was our Passover sacrifice for us. So Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost that Jesus identified with the Passover as well. Well, what did the Passover create? What benefit, what results did it create for the children of Israel? Well, first and foremost, it's obvious that they didn't die. The firstborn of their houses did not die. So it protected them. The blood that Jesus identifies with later on through the ministry of Paul Protected them from harm. But in Psalm 105 verse 37. It tells us a little bit more. It says following the Passover. When they left Egypt. It says God brought them out with silver and gold. And there was not one feeble among them. There was not one feeble among them. Well immediately after they come through. Their deliverance. Through the Red Sea. And again you remember that story I'm sure. Pharaoh and his grief changed his mind and sent his army out to kill the the Israelites and they come to the place where the Red Sea is behind them Pharaoh's armies are in front of them and on each side is a mountain range so Moses cried out to God and God said stretch your hands out over the water and divide it so they did everything dried up they went across on dry ground when Pharaoh tried to chase after them the waters came back together and destroyed his army The greatest military force on the face of the earth at that time was destroyed in the Red Sea. Well, as you can well imagine, now not only is Israel delivered from the bondage of Egypt, but they'll never have another problem with Pharaoh or the Egyptians ever again. And so they sing their song of deliverance. Exodus chapter 15 tells us about Miriam singing that song. Miriam, who was Moses' sister, singing that song of God's deliverance but then a few days later they come to a place where there's no water for them to drink. Now there's water there, but the water was bitter. Now it's unclear from the language if it just means that the water wasn't pleasant to drink or if it's poisonous. But Moses cried out to God and God told him a tree. He showed him a tree. And Moses cut a branch down from that tree and threw it into the water, and the waters were made sweet. Now maybe that's a type of Jesus as well. I certainly see the the symbolism there that we could attach to Jesus but more importantly at the point in time when it took place God made an ordinance now an ordinance is an unchanging law it's an unchanging and eternal law that God makes and he makes this law and he identifies himself matter of fact I think we ought to read this just to Exodus chapter 15 verse 26 let me get there real quick Verse 25, Moses cried out unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. In other words, here's an eternal law of God. And he said, if thou wilt hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases, the word put is literally the word allow, I will allow none of these diseases upon thee which have come upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, this is one of the seven redemptive names that God identifies himself to Israel as. This is a name that God gives himself. It's not a name the Israelites gave to God. This is God saying, This is who I am. Now, that's the case with all seven of the redemptive names of Jesus in the Old Testament. God identified himself as our righteousness he identified himself as our peace he identified himself as our victory he identified himself as our provider he identified himself as our healer i'm sure that didn't add up to seven i forgot a couple of ones along the way but you get the point the point is this is how god identifies himself to his people it's who he wants his people to know that he is now if god was their healer i am the lord that healeth thee Who has the right and who has the authority to say he's not that anymore? God says of himself, I am God, I change not. So how in the world can anybody in the body of Christ claim or suppose in any way whatsoever that they have the authority to change who God said that he was? He said, I am the Lord that healeth thee. The grammar that's used in that phrase, the Lord that healeth thee, is a continuous action. Which means. I am the Lord that healed you in the past. I am the Lord that heals you in the present. I am the Lord that will always heal you. Now how could they know anything about God healing them in the past? It's possible. And again you can't uh, say definitively one way or the other. But particularly with the, the grammar that's used. The, the present um, perfect verbs that are used with this. It's very possible that that the healing that was necessary for the children of Israel to come out with silver and gold and not one feeble among them. This is a crowd of 2 to 7 million people. There's old folks in the crowd along with young folks. And in a crowd that size, you would certainly expect somebody to be sick in some manner or uh, some way or another. So it's very possible, likely in my opinion, but certainly very possible that God is saying, I'm the one that through the Passover healed you. The reason that's possible is we know in Hezekiah's day, some 400 years after this point in time where Israel comes out of Egypt by the hand of God, Hezekiah, who turned out to be a a righteous king of Israel, one of the few, he reinstituted the Passover. For some reason, they had not partaken of or, or kept the Passover for a long time. He reads or has somebody read to him from the law of Moses about this thing called the Passover. And so he says, let's do this. We never should have stopped doing it. Let's do this. And so even though they did it at the wrong time of year, even though the priests were not appropriately cleansed before they entered into this Passover ritual, they kept the Passover and the Bible says that the Lord healed all the people. Now, this word healed is talking about physical healing. It's a word that's always used in connection with physical healing. So out of nowhere, seemingly, in Hezekiah's day, the Passover brought healing healing and health to the people. Well, that might confirm or at least lend some credibility to when God says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. He's saying, I'm the one that brought healing for all those that were sick and infirmed in the nation of Israel so that they could go out in strength. You decide for yourself. So here's three examples. In the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. Here's three examples. Of the substitutionary work of Jesus. Providing healing from sickness and disease. Now there's a lot of other things that we could use. A lot of other things that we could point to. One for example was in David's day. In one of his Psalms. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. David understood, and he would only be able to understand by the power of the Holy Ghost, by the revelation of the Holy Ghost. David starts talking about the benefits of God. It goes something like this, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And then he identifies his benefits, who forgiveth all thy iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Now, folks, he doesn't even break one breath when he talks about the connection with forgiveness from sin and healing from sickness and disease. He goes further and says, Who redeems our life from destruction and crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Why would David put sickness and sin on par with one another if it was not part of God's plan of, of redemption, literally, Or the work of Jesus in the atonement. Now, you need to understand something, folks, and that is there is one principle among the Jews that they understood like nothing else. They understood that sickness and disease was a result of sin. Part of that is because of what Moses told the people, like in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that we looked at a little bit earlier, or talked about a little bit earlier. God talks about the awful consequences of disobedience, of turning away and rebelling against him. And it included sickness and disease. So the children of Israel know through their history and through what God's word says to them, they know that if they turn from God, if they disobey God rather than living their lives in obedience to his word, they know these terrible things and calamities and adversity and destruction will come upon them. They had a vicious cycle in their lives for all of their existence. They would disobey God. They would fall into calamity. They would repent and call on God's mercy. God would deliver them and heal them. Then they'd disobey, fall into calamity, and so forth. And they kept this cycle going for all of their existence. And as such, they knew from the oldest to the youngest they knew that sin was at the root cause of sickness and disease. Let me give you an example of that. You remember in John chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus and his disciples came to a place where a, man was, a blind man was there, and they knew enough about him to know that he had been born blind. So Peter had a question for Jesus. He said, Master, who did sin, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now why would they ask that question? Because it goes back to the foundational truth that they understand. They know that sin, they know that sickness and disease is a result of sin. They just don't know whose sin it was. That's the only question they have. Was it the man's sin? That'd be kind of hard to imagine since he was born blind. Or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus responds very specifically. He says, Neither is this man's sin nor his parents'. Then he goes further and says, but that the works of God must, may be made done in him, I must work the works of him that sent me. The night cometh when no man can work. In other words, Jesus said, I'm here to work the works of God in him. Does, that does not mean God made him to be born blind so that he'd have somebody to heal down the road when Jesus came. It just simply means that Jesus was sent to the earth to do the will of God now no matter what you think about why the man was blind and i grew up in sunday school where they taught us that god made this man blind so that jesus would have somebody to heal so that john could write about it in his gospel well folks that's just stupid why would god have to plan 30 some years ahead of time for jesus to have a blind man to heal that just doesn't make sense but what's even more important is that Jesus identified the works of God. So when Jesus heals the blind man, in the first place, if God wanted him to be sick or wanted him to be blind, then Jesus has to be operating contrary to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. But then when some would say, yeah, but God made him to be blind so that Jesus would have somebody to heal. Now, we've got to be careful about that because God's will never changes. That means if it was ever his will for this man to be blind, it will always be his will for this man to be blind. So then if Jesus heals him when God's will was for him to be blind, Jesus is working contrary to the plan and the purpose of God. He's working contrary to the will of God on the earth. But the Bible says in Acts chapter 10 verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing. All that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with it. Peter says by the Holy Ghost. That everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. Not oppressed of God. In other words. The sickness that Jesus healed. In every person that we have record of. And all the people that we don't know about. John said. If everything Jesus said and did was written down. The world itself couldn't contain the books. Well then that would have to mean. There are more people that were healed. Than just the ones we have record of. Regardless. Everybody that Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. In other words, their sickness was a result of sin. Maybe not individual sin, but the curse of sin that came upon the earth. Just like the disciples understood. Just like all the Jews understood. So if all the people that Jesus healed were oppressed of the devil or sick because of the devil's work in the earth, that means this guy would have to be included. So what did Jesus do? He worked the works of God that sent him. What were those works? He put a little mud pack on his eye. spit on the ground. Put a little mud pack in his eye. And told him to go wash off in the pool of Siloam. And he came again seeing. Again the the connection between sin and sickness. And Jesus paid the price as our substitute for both sin and sickness. Now one final word I want to make. And why don't you look with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 Peter was writing to the church and telling us about Jesus, who he was an eyewitness to, both his life and his death. Let's start reading in verse 21. It says for even hereunto were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Now, the suffering it's talking about here is suffering persecution. That's the only thing the Bible says that we will suffer here in this earth or in this life. The Bible says, the, Paul said that the godly will suffer persecution, which may be the reason why a lot of people are never persecuted. They don't live well enough for people to, to rise up in opposition against them. Verse 22, who did no sin, talking about Jesus, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed un himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Now I want you to notice the similarity between what Peter says looking back at the work of the cross as opposed to what Isaiah said, looking forward to the work on the cross. Isaiah, again, verse 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Did you see that? Isaiah looking forward's Says the work of the Messiah will bring redemption, the taking away from sin, the exchange for righteousness, and with his stripes we are healed. Peter says it as something has already been done. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Isaiah says we are healed. Peter says we were. What's the difference? their perspective to the cross Isaiah looks forward to the work that the substitute will make the substitutionary work of the Messiah Peter looks back and declares what Jesus did do and because we were healed when Jesus took upon himself stripes on his back by those stripes literally bruise, by that punishment we were healed Now Peter does not say, interestingly enough, Peter does not say it's getting close to the end of my life. And I know when I and the rest of the disciples that are still alive or the apostles when we die then healing will be done away with but rather Peter gives us a letter inspired by the Holy Ghost to identify that the work of Jesus on the cross is not and will never be affected one way or another by Apostles, or any minister here on the earth, but that it was a substitutionary work done by Jesus, performed by Jesus on our behalf that can never be changed and will never come to an end. See, folks, if we take the position, or if anybody that does take the position, that healing has been done away with, since healing was clearly identified in the scripture as being paid for by the blood of Jesus, then that puts all of the blood of Jesus in question when it comes to redemption. If the blood of Jesus that provided healing for our physical bodies can ever be altered or changed in any manner whatsoever then why couldn't the rest of the blood of Jesus that paid the price for sin and spiritual death why couldn't that be affected too see again you can't have it both ways it's either eternal it's either either an eternal substitutionary work or it's not at all thank God it's real thank God his blood still Provides the same benefit for physical healing as it provides for the saving of the soul, as the Scripture says, meaning the recreated human spirit. Folks, we need to be so ingrained in this that we're able to help people that will never come to the place where they listen to the word being taught in this regard. You've got people in your life, whether you know them or not, you've got people that you have acquaintance with and people you interact with that have no idea what the bible says belongs to them and that's why paul said we've been given the ministry of reconciliation the good news of jesus the gospel is that jesus made the exchange he paid the price so that we don't have to and that exchange was for sin eternal life for sickness healing for our physical bodies as well as many, many other things that the Bible says that belongs to us because God is our Father and He's a good God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the substitutionary work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We declare, even as Your Word says, Father, that You've forgiven our iniquities, You've healed our diseases, Jesus was chastised for our peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We thank you, Father, that that is an accomplished reality. It's not a hope to look forward to. It's something that's already been done because Jesus paid the price for us. He was our substitute. He took upon himself this terrible punishment and penalty so that we need not Take it upon ourselves. Thank you, Father, that your word is true and that word always works. So we declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that the devil's power has been broken over our lives and that we have the authority to take hold of what you've provided for us through your son, Jesus. So we declare, we say, according to the word of God, we were healed. Healing is ours. Sickness, we command you to go. We refuse to give you any place in our bodies or in our lives in any way whatsoever. We declare that the Lord is raising us up because Jesus paid the price for sin and sickness. In Jesus' precious name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen.